Welcome back to iDren Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks, and I'm wearing a Liberty Bell today because I think that it represents the democracy that we have had, that I hope we can continue to have as we face a lot of big events in the news. And today, Victor, can we talk about at least two of those things? One would be the vice president, uh, former vice president, Pence, also has classified documents in his home. And so I want to talk about both the process that allowed him to get yep. them to his house and why he this many years later has them uh, and talk about that. And then also there was a hearing in uh, Atlanta this morning, uh, Fulton County Fulton DA Fonnie yeah. Willis uh, made a presentation about whether the special grand jury's report should be public. Let's talk about those two things. Which one do you want to start with? Let's start with the Mike Pence thing, because I was I was in class and I got this notification. So my, my class was on Zoom and I got this notification from CNN saying that Mike Pence uh, is basically the FBI raided his, not raided, but searched his yeah. home in Carmel, Indiana, and found about a dozen uh, classified documents. And uh, this was last week, and we are just hearing about it now. And I had to read it twice because I'm like, how is it possible that yeah. Mike Pence now is involved in this too? And so I'm wondering, I think there are some key differences, and, and you can definitely explain this better than I can, but you know, what's the difference between what Trump did, and it seems like what Pence is doing is more related to what Biden's doing, which is that it's lawful. Sure, it's not great, but it's lawful uh, compared to Trump. Is that a, well, a right way to read it, what we have so far? Yeah, let's. I think that's a great question. Um, there's a lot we don't know, I want to say, about Pence and what caused him to have this search done. And um, There are, in terms of the differences between how he's handling it and how President Biden has handled it, is both of them are cooperating. Neither of them required a a search warrant or a subpoena. Mm -hmm. And there has never been a prosecution for retention of classified documents without there being something more than the retention. But this raises the issue of how are they getting out of the government's hands? Where are these being viewed to begin with? Why are they in people's offices? Why are they, um, uh, you know, going forward? But, you know, maybe we can continue this conversation uh, after we introduce our guest for the day. Uh, he is the reason that I am wearing this Liberty Bell pin. And so why don't we, uh, Victor, why don't you start with some introduction to this episode Absolutely. So um, a few weeks ago, we saw thousands of Brazilians storm the country's capital because their candidate, uh, Bolsonaro, lost and claimed the election was stolen. And one can see to the winner, uh, Del Silva. And if that image rings a bell in your mind, it should, because it's eerily similar to what happened right here in America slightly more than two years ago on January 6th. 2021, when thousands of Trump supporters stormed our Capitol building because they were fed a big lie and were egged on by Donald Trump. And so today we're going to talk about was Bolsonaro and his right wing voters inspired by Donald Trump's big lie and his followers uh, insurrection at our Capitol Um, election denial and disinformation are also hallmarks of fascism. And today we're going to talk about that and the spread of fascism around the world and right here at home and what we can all do to push back against it and its causes. And we're joined by a great guest, uh, Jill. Do you want to introduce him? Yes, I would. I am very excited to be meeting for the first time a fascism expert, Jason Stanley. Um, 
he is a professor of philosophy at Yale University. He's been there since 2013. And before that, he was at Rutgers University. Uh, he is also the author of numerous books, including one that is especially relevant for our conversation today. It's called How Propaganda Works. And that fascinates me. It won the Prose Award for Philosophy from the Association of American Publishers. He writes about authoritarianism, propaganda, free speech, and other topics for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Boston Review, the Guardian, and other publications. So, Jason, thank you very much for joining us live today. Thank you so much. And I, hear me? I'm sorry, I'm on my cell phone. My, my, for some reason, uh, my internet is not working. Oh, dear. I'm sorry about that. But yes, we can hear you. Yes. Uh, so no problem. And we can see you as well. So that is good. All good. So we, we want to get right into the conversation. So you study fascism and many Americans, I don't think, realize what that quite means or and, you know, they reject the idea that that is or could happen here. So first, define what fascism means and, and tell us if you think that fascism is growing in America right now. So. Fascism is a, is a cult of the who promises national restoration by. Wait, well, hold on a second. You are breaking up. Can Jay? Can yeah. hold on? Let me shift to. Uh, that sounds better. Oh, uh, but now, now we lost your picture, but at least we can hear you. Uh, let's see. Um, stay, stay there. <laughs> The technical problems of doing a live show. You are witnessing it here. And do we have a chat feature that people can send in questions? Uh, can you hear me now? I can hear you, and we saw, and, and I can see you. Good. So, so fascism is is a cult of the leader who promises national restoration in the face of supposed national humiliation by minorities by uh, LGBT, by immigrants, uh, by feminists. He says that, that the nation is being destroyed. The real people of the nation, in our case, the real Americans are being replaced. The leftists want to bring immigrants in. You know, Hitler and Mein Kampf is, uh, is, uh, is always saying, you know, the Jews, the Marxist Jews want to destroy uh, the, the Germans by bringing in immigrants, by by undermining the people and race mixing. Uh, you know, the Nazis harshly went after Ma Magnus Hirschfeld, the gay Jewish uh, uh, a scientist who was the founder of the Institute for Sexuelle Wissenschaft, uh, the Institute for Sexual uh, Science, which had the largest collection of, mm. uh, of, of photos of gender fluid fluidity that challenged gender norms. So the the Nazis harshly targeted them as propaganda. So in their propaganda, so LGBT is always like a, a super focus of fascism because they believe in in hierarchies, uh, gender hierarchies, rigid gender roles, uh, hierarchies of race, uh, and uh, and and uh, hierarchies of nations. So uh, so we we can think that this is foreign to us, but then we'd be ignoring the fact. That in Mein Kampf, Hitler's main example of a state he wants Nazi Germany to emulate is the United States. Uh, so, so the Nuremberg laws, the laws that robbed mm. my father of his citizenship and rendered him stateless at the age of three in Berlin, were based on the Jim Crow laws. So this book by James wow. Wade, 
uh, Hitler's American model is uh, he went to the archives and he shows he shows you the transcripts from the lawyers who are debate discussing the Nazi lawyers who are discussing the the Nuremberg laws. And he shows you that they're looking at the Jim Crow anti-miscegenation laws as a model. Uh, they, the uh, one of the Nazi main Nazi lawyers uh, says compares the Nazi boycott of Jewish shops to the Jim Crow uh, situation. He mm -hmm. says we're just that's just the American version of what we're doing. Uh, Black Americans have always known this. Langston Hughes in 1937 in speeches in Paris, as the historian Matthew Delmont has just shown, but it's well known. Um, uh, essentially said fascism is Jim Crow with a foreign accent. Uh, wow. So, uh, so the black press in 1943, the Pittsburgh Courier, the black newspaper, had a double, founded a double V victory campaign, victory against fascism home and abroad. So the, the black, black soldiers fighting in a segregated army against Hitler always knew what they were doing. They were hoping that by fighting fascism abroad, they could get Americans to confront it at home. Uh, what were they fighting? They were fighting racial segregation. <laughs> they were fighting racial hierarchies. So, you know, they knowingly, explicitly knew that, uh, that, uh, that they were, you know, they were hoping that this is what was happening. They were hoping, hoping that their heroism in World War II would bring Americans to confront Jim Crow at home. So the black, black Americans have always, black American intellectuals, black American press have always, uh, have always known about this connection. They, they blew the whistle on Hitler's persecution of the Jews very early on because they recognized it as what they- So let me, let me ask you a question about, you had started with the fact that after a big humiliation, and in Germany's case, it was the loss of World War I, but- what is the humiliation in America that could be possibly uh, provoking this kind of thing? Well, we did just go through a series of wars, the Iraq war. The, the, we, we have a situation, the Af Afghanistan, we have a situation where we have a lot of returning veterans. Uh, we have a lot of, that was, of course, the situation much magnified mm -hmm. that Germany faced in the 1920s. Um, so, uh, so, um, so, there are some parallels there, but in general, it doesn't need to. You know, Nazi Germany isn't the only case. We can, you can, you can forge this uh, sense of humiliation without losing a war, without World War One. You can do it, and and the method that that fascism uses is great replacement theory. What you say mm -hmm. is that the dominant group is being replaced uh, culturally, physically. Uh, so you say, look, uh, the dominant, so the form, so fascism is based on ethno-nationalism. So for fascism to take root, you have to have a particular dominant ethno-nationalist identity. In Germany, it's the Nazis. In Italy, it was the Italians. Uh, here in the United States, it's white Christian nationalism. Yeah, Christian nationalism is the view that uh, the founders were Christians who, who, who were channeling Christianity in our founding documents. And the greatness of our nation is due to its Christian character. It's exceptional. Its exceptional nature is due to its Christian character. And since the founders were white, white men, Christian nationalism is white male, white Christian nationalism. And so that's our ethno-nationalism here. And it simultaneously targets LGBT. Christian nationalism places men over women, uh, 
straight people over LGBT, uh, whites over over non-whites, uh, uh, Christians over every other religion. and, and Men that, over women. Yeah. Oh, I thought I started with that. Sorry. Oh. Men over women. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's, that's, we, we have a classic fascist formation, which targets, and, and that's why we're all in this together, right? Right, because right. That's with someone like Ron DeSantis, who targets, who's targeting LGBT uh, and black people. He just banned the teaching of African-American history in, uh, in Florida. He passed the bill modeled on Russia's 2013 Gay Propaganda Act, which forbids the representation of LGBT relations relationships to those under 18. So he passed a version of that for elementary school. So, uh, so this goes, you know, so, so this is, this is the structure we face and, and yeah. it never have surprised black intellectuals that fascism has roots. In so, so we want to get into Ron DeSantis later because I mean, it's hearing you say that and seeing what's happening in these Republican states. I mean, it's so just similar in terms of what they're trying to do. And it seems like it's nothing but kind of promoting this fascist ideology. But I, I want to go to um, January 6th because it was recently the, the two-year anniversary of January 6th. And, and I wonder if you can just start by, by telling our audience, is what happened on January 6th a sign of fascism? And how do you kind of see where we are two years later in terms of how susceptible we still are to that? So a number of historians of fascism uh, were reluctant to label what we face here fascism until uh, until January 6th. So hmm. Paxton, for example, Robert Paxton. So a number of really heavy hitting historians who were like, mm, I'm not really sure, were like January 6th really did it for them because it you know, i think the problem with historians sometimes is they look for exact parallels and and january 6th is uh, has exact parallels to uh, an attempted fascist coup in france in 1934 obviously uh you know there's there's uh there's things like the hitler's beer hall putsch which is somewhat less yeah. less because it was then almost a decade later that the nazis came to power but in france you had uh, an attempted fascist coup that took exactly that form. So, and Paxton is a French historian of fascism. So, uh, so uh, there are there are major heavy-hitting historians who, are like after January sixth, like yes, the Republican Party is hiding a fascist social uh, yes. and political movement. However, I think we too much focus on the European case, uh, and we don't look at Latin America, for instance. Latin America has had a whole bunch of dictatorships since World War II, right-wing dictatorships. And I think that's very much the structure uh, of what we're looking at. Uh, January 6th, uh, January 6th threatens to be a kind of uh, rallying cry moment for the fascist social and political movement that we face here in the United States. A kind of look at the heroism, look at, that's the structure, look at, look at our heroes who tried to save our nation. Th that's the worry that scholars have, uh, that it becomes a kind of, uh, uh, it becomes a kind of a rallying cry moment, um, like the beer hall putsch. And when we talk about a rallying cry, Trump's words, um, and I would go back to way before the election about if I lose, this is a fraudulent election, to his words, go to the Capitol, we can't have a democracy unless you do this. Uh, how connected are his words and lies to the violence that we saw on that day? 
directly connected. He was engaging incitement to violence. I mean, incitement to riot. I mean, that's he. He was. He's an authority figure. And when figures who are in authority tell you, tell the tell people, uh, you know, you need to fight for your nation. If the president of the United States says you need to fight for your nation, a lot of Americans are going to believe him. So because that's what authority means, right? So it was a national crisis. It's, it's, it's not just. I mean, it's beyond irresponsible. Uh, you know, I don't. Uh, you know, it is it is what, what upsets me about January sixth is that we're not targeting the people who uh, who are really responsible, which are the political leaders, the Ted Cruz's, yeah. the Trumps. They're the ones really responsible because it's completely understandable if you're a normal American, if the president of the United States. And multiple senators, senators like Ted Cruz, who went to Princeton. You know, I mean, let's not forget, these are people who should know better. I'm a man of the people. I went to State University of New York at Stony Brook. Ted Cruz went to Princeton. He went to Harvard Law School. This is a man telling you, these are people telling you the election has been stolen. Uh, uh, so, you know, these are the people that should have known better. And uh, it's completely understandable that a number of people would be misled and not know what to believe when authority figures like that lie to them. Uh, and that's the, uh, and they should be held responsible. And instead we're holding lower level people responsible who were incited uh, by them. Of course, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, these are far right fascist groups that should be held responsible. They're, they're you know, if they do something illegal, uh, and they should be held responsible. Um, but, but there were, you know, the, the situation you create when the president of the United States spreads such massive lies, you know, that's the fault of the president of, of the person of someone that's someone misabusing their authority by definition. So in the same vein as accountability, and I completely agree with you that the pace at which accountability is happening here is really just painfully slow. But one of the striking things, we mentioned Brazil at the outset of the conversation, and, and compared to Brazil, it seems like the pace at which accountability is happening here is rolling just far slower. I'm wondering, is, is there due process in Brazil, and is that what slowed down the arrest invaders here? Uh, and like, do you think that delay is necessary in our system, and does it increase the chances for the far right to repeat their actions uh, of January 6th. So, of course, there's been very little accountability for the people who should be held accountable, which are yeah. the political or no accountability. So, uh, so we have, uh, so we have a, uh, a, uh, uh, so we have a, um, we have a specific, uh, we have a specific structure here. Uh, that uh, that Tim Snyder said this on on uh, on uh, I forget which show, but he he said you know in a rule of law country, Trump and the other political leaders like Cruz, Hawley, etc., uh, they'd be in prison for this. Uh, in a dictatorship, they'd be dead. <laughs> uh, so we're somewhere in between. So uh, so what's happening in Brazil is different, more complex. It's not. Um, not a better situation. Not a better situation. Um, it's just uh, it's just a different situation. Uh, it's a different situation with some of the same causes. Obviously, it was a copycat thing. Uh, it was a copycat. Uh, it was a copycat uh, event. Um, and uh, and you know they missed it by two days. It was silly because Congress wasn't in session. 
uh, Congress wasn't in session and uh, and no one there, uh, but but it was intended. It was really intended copycat event. Uh, I still mm. say better because uh, we know it looks like the military escorted uh, the protesters into uh, uh, the Brazilian capital. Um, uh, Lula yeah. did not order the military to do the arrests because he did not trust the military. Um, so he used the federal police. Uh, he he could he trusted neither the local Brazilian poli- the, the local police in the in the in the in in Brasilia nor the military. He he trusted the federal police. Um, so there's a lot of penetration of Bolsonaro supporters in the military in Brazil, and we're talking about a country that very recently was a fascist military dictatorship until 1986 uh, that communists and leftists. Yeah, I'd like to follow up on that because when we look at what happened in Brazil and the military involvement, um, and except in our case, there were military people in the rioting crowd, but there's no evidence that the military assisted them uh, to get in or in any other way. Um, But when you look at history and uprisings against governments, how common is it that the military gets involved? And um, is there any evidence that the military was involved in January 6th other than as protesters? No, I don't think the the military has been, uh, we've been lucky in that regard. Um, Fascism wins when you have complicity with, when you have active participation from the police, the military, uh, when, when you have those institutions supporting uh, supporting the authoritarian takeover. Uh, and that's what, what we really have to worry about in the case of Brazil. Um, I think in the United States, now the presence of military veterans here, we talked about earlier, you asked what kind of loss has the United States had? Well, literature on talks about the role of returning veterans in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, fascist takeovers who are disgruntled, upset that they didn't receive a lost war like uh, or a complicated, compl- 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 unjust wars like Iraq. Uh, the Americans generally recognize that that was an utter disaster and failure. Um, uh, those leave veterans very upset and disgruntled because they're not getting the kind of appreciation uh, that that they should because it wasn't their fault. Uh, that their military, that our leaders sent them into uh, a, a completely unjust war. So, uh, so mm-hmm. what happened in the past is disgruntled veterans often form the basis of far right authoritarian movements, uh, and that's what we see here. And it's it's very similar to um, to unfortunately, but the, these are people who are trained in the military, and uh, and uh, and they are an effective uh, battalion. Uh, essentially, for uh, for a far right takeover. Wow. So let's look at closer um, what's happening here in America right now. In Congress, I mean, we're seeing people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boeber, and other representatives who lie and denied the 2020 election results, serving on really key committees like the Oversight Committee um, and, and other Homeland Security committees. How dangerous is it that we are giving these people more power in Congress? Uh, if that's a rhetorical question, <laughs> uh, obviously, you know, uh, you just want me to explain how dangerous it is. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, 
Well, obviously we have, we have a, um, you know, I think that the danger in the short term, uh, well, there's so many dangers. You can't even, uh, it's hard to enumerate them. (laughs) Member from the Trump administration, so many things are happening so quickly on so many different fronts that it's like, it's like a waterfall. Part of the purpose of that. So, so, um, on the one hand, we have, you know, the kind of destruction of the United States' international credit with the refusal to raise the debt limit, which would, uh, so, you know, if you cause widespread economic devastation, uh, people will turn to other, uh, other outlets, right? Now, note that the Republican, con- that the con- Republican Congress under Trump uh, just passed the debt limit every time while Trump was racking up enormous debt. It was no issue at all um, because they know that if they destroy the country under Trump, it'll hurt people's views of Trump. Um, So they're actively trying to destroy the country and then getting people to blame it on Biden. But the problem is if you default on the debt, uh, you know, we were the only country in the world that can borrow like this. No other country can do that uh, to jeopardize that is to jeopardize our special status. It's a literally an attack on America. And so so that's a huge danger. Um, so uh, so I mean, you know, what do they want? They want the euro to be the reserve currency. Uh, I, uh, so uh, so so that is those things are possibilities uh, if 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 we let them carry this out. So but they don't care. They don't care about the country. Um, uh, they just care. They want to tear down everything. Uh, and power is the only thing that matters. So that's what we face. We face people who are completely, we face a group on the radical right who are completely unconstrained by the rule of law. So what do you do when people are completely unconstrained by the rule of law? Uh, so the, the, they'd be willing to tolerate any anything as long as it gets them into power. Uh, so, uh, so I don't even think we're talking about people with a specific political ideology. They're going to be far right to draw the evangelicals in. By the way, Brazil, the, uh, the, what happened in Brazil was, was and Thea Butler said in, in, uh, in uh, the scholar of Christian nationalism said on Twitter that, uh, that Brazil was, uh, was um, no doubt plotted in churches. It was uh, the, the, the press coverage of uh, what happened in Brazil uh, was filled with reports of people praying, before they, they went in to sack the sack the Congress, uh, uh, the the alarming numbers of preachers that were present. So the evangelical, these Pentecostal evangelical extremism, uh, Christian nationalism, um, is driving a lot of this. I want to follow up on what you just said about the fact that um, it, there's the Republicans don't care and they want to destroy the country and are using the debt ceiling as one of the tactics to get that. But they've also been taking away or are in favor of taking away a lot of basic rights, uh, the right to vote, for example. Um, And they have now formed committees that are really, it seems to me, designed to make people distrust the government and to give themselves a platform to perpetuate the lies that they have been living on and to um, create a clown show. And 
I don't know if this is part of what propaganda and fascism require, uh, but it scares me. And it scares me that there are millions of Americans who will believe what they're hearing. What's, am I right to be worried? And what is the methodology for making people listen to the truth? How do you communicate? How do you overcome lies when they come from the president, now the former president, um, but he started it when he was president. He started it when he was a candidate. So there are now years of lies by Donald Trump and all of his enablers. And when I've tried to engage with a Trump supporter, they simply reject anything. That, well, I just simply don't believe that fact. When you say, well, what about the um, judges that threw out all the cases of fraud? Oh, I don't believe that. I believe that there were machines that, you know, manipulated the vote. How do we get back to facts in America? How do we overcome this propaganda? Okay, so um, I think a lot of it is, I mean, you know, your work, it's a different time than Watergate, okay? So it's its not that time. I think it's a time <laughs> where a lot of people you're talking to don't care whether it's a lie or not. Um, they, they're, you know... You know, Ali Alexander, the person, the Stop the Steal movement leader, here's what we mean by the election was stolen. If you win, it was stolen. If we win, it was fair. That's what he said. So, and uh, within churches, within evangelical churches, nobody cares whether the election was actually stolen. Nobody cares. Everyone knows that it's about, uh, that uh, white Christians are about Everyone believes, because it's not true, sorry, everyone believes that white Christians are going to be replaced, are going to have their power removed, are, and, they, and they think that they need to rule as a minority. Uh, and, and, you know, and democracy itself is the enemy. So that means it's, you know, they know, I think the vast majority of, of people who say the election was stolen know the election was not stolen. But they, and, they, and they view democracy as their enemy because they think that eventually their far-right extremist uh, Christian ideology is going to be uh, uh, supported by a minority of Americans. It already is supported by a minority of Americans. So you appoint a far-right, illegitimate Supreme Court, uh, anti-democratic, quasi-fascist Supreme Court that, uh, that, uh, that is far to the right of the majority of Americans. Uh, and you and uh, and you try to gain uh, power that way by by employing uh, aspects of the American system, such as the Senate, the Electoral College, that uh, that are anti-democratic by their nature. Uh, so uh, so I think that it's not as much a problem about trying to convince people of things because they already know. In fact, in churches, they're being told that democracy, something that democracy, the enemy is really democracy. Uh, that that you know they need to seize control of the nation before it is taken from them, and they know perfectly well that it that it will be and you know that it will be taken at the ballot box. So I, I want to ask a follow up question to that in the same vein of misinformation and disinformation and lies and what gets people to believe in these things. Is there any way to reach that audience? Those people who think that there are magnets in COVID vaccine or believe that the 2020 election was stolen. Is there any way to reach them anymore? And if so, how do we do that? 
again, how many of them actually believe that, that it, and how many of them are just, you, I mean, you know that Ron DeSantis doesn't believe it. He graduated and went to Harvard. I mean, what are you talking about? I mean, the movement, it's not disinformation. They know what they're doing. Maybe you could um, define so, for us a propaganda, misinformation, disinformation, lies. Are they all the same thing or is there a difference between them? Because now we're getting into this, whether people actually believe what they're saying or the listeners believe it. I think what's going on, I think we focus too much on inf on the information aspect. It's more like, it's more tribal than that. Um, mm. If you're in a group, there are certain things you say. <laughs> like the election, if you, uh, you know, are are a, a Trump supporter, you say the election is stolen, whether you believe it or not, because as Ali Alexander said, here's what it means. If you win, it's stolen. If we win, it's not. <laughs> it's fair. You know, what's mysterious about that? It's more a power struggle. Uh, but the way the information space works, it's no longer a democratic information space. A democratic information space is one where we trust each other enough so that we can communicate normally. But uh, mm -hmm. what you do to try to destroy a democratic information space is you try to radically undermine trust. You try to say the other side are pedophiles. The other side are, are, are kidnapping little children in their sex groups. You know, So whatever they say, even if it's true, it's, we, you need to discount it because it's in the service of this evil cause. Uh, then the information space is completely different, right? Um, the information space, space is completely filled with mistrust. And so there's no straightforward communication going on. It's just a war for power. I mean, nobody on the battlefield in World War II was like, hey, you're not being fair. Uh, <laughs> no. That, so that's what you try to, that's what fascist politics involves. Fascist politics involves you know, painting the other side as, as um, you know, um, uh, you know, monsters, as sexual offenders and, and things like this. So, well, yeah, so you mentioned the difference between now and Watergate. In Watergate, we had three basic communications tools, which were um, ABC, NBC, and CBS. And they all had the same facts. No one debated the facts. People debated policy outcomes, but now you're quite right. Facts are at issue and facts are ignored because I, I think you're right. People just don't care if it's true or not. On the, if you're in, a, in an existential struggle for your life, you know, it's not a discussion, right? And so, you know, the other person says something, you know, like they want to kill you. So what you have is you have, unfortunately, this is the situation we face. One group wants to kill democracy. <laughs> and so, so, you know, I'm, it, it's, it's, it's hard for me to trust Ted Cruz. <laughs> I mean, I don't trust what he says, even if it's true, <laughs> like, because I know that he has an anti-democratic agenda uh, and uh, it's about power. So uh, the question is what will return us to a situation where I can sit across the table from, uh, you know, okay. uh, far right, evangelical uh, right. MAGA supporter. And we can say we're both Americans. We love this country. Uh, you know, we have different beliefs, but that's part of being in a democracy. You know, 
Uh, I have to trust that you're not going to impose your beliefs on my Jewish children. Um, you know, you're going to have to trust me that even though I'm pro-LGBT, uh, I'm not going to demand that anyone becomes gay if they don't want to. You know, and so we're going to trust each other. But politicians are tearing us apart. Uh, that's what they're doing. They're engaging in a politics just for power. And they're trying to represent, they're trying to fracture the fact that we're all Americans. They're trying to say the real Americans are the white Christians. Can I pin you down on that? How do you reach that audience? Is there any way that you can get through to them? Or is it just, I am so committed to destroying democracy because I am a white Christian, not me, but them saying this, I'm a white Christian and I need to be in control. Uh, are we headed to the kind of apartheid that has now been abolished in South Africa? What is there any way to overcome this? It's going to be tough because yeah. they're hearing from uh, and, you know, there's no easy way. And it's going to be tough. It's going to be a fight because uh, every Sunday, a large portion of Americans hear that their country is under assault from people like, like me. Uh, wow. So every country, large portion of Americans is being told that God requires them to save this country from people who aren't white and Christian and straight. So, so one, one of the things that, I mean, I, I'm comforted by, but also not really because it's a long-term solution to, I think, a very immediate problem is um, things like news literacy classes. You know, how can we equip the future generations with the tools needed to distinguish between lies and fiction, uh, between lies and, and truth? Do you think that's an effective way to, to start combating this? Or based off of your research, what are the most effective ways to combat lies and propaganda and, and, and all of this? But I know you guys want to talk about that, but I've come to believe that's not the problem we face. The problem we face, we are fractured. Hmm. The problem is that there are Americans who want this to be a Christian nation. There are Americans who want this to be their nation. And they rightly see wow. that there are different Americans with different values. Hmm. And, and how do you combat that? Well, I think the only way to combat that is to, to you know, share the wealth of Americans, make people feel less economically anxious. That's one way to do it. Uh, maybe that's not a silver bullet. Um, uh, but to see people with values are their enemies. And that's a hard process. It involves, unfortunately, us remaking the country so that, you know, it's not one group of people with one values living in cities and another group with another set of values living in rural areas, for example. Um, so, uh, but we've become fractured so that, you know, I don't have, you know, somebody with a, a uh, hat living next door. If I did, they would see I'm a nice guy. You know, I'm a good neighbor. Uh, but that's not what we face. And we, fa we face a more, a, a structure of a more existential challenge. Um, uh, as I said, you know, and it's when it's connected to religion, religious wars, the history, history is the history of religious wars, right? So, wow. So let's, I think it's a lot easier if we face reality and, and, yeah. and you know that what I'm saying is true. <laughs> well, well, you're, you're definitely scaring me and you've definitely got my attention. But let me ask you, do you think lawsuits, uh, I was very optimistic 
that the lawsuit against Fox by the voting machine company that it defamed might get Fox to stop uh, fostering the propagation of lies. Uh, I was very pleased when uh, Trump withdrew his frivolous lawsuit against the New York attorney general because he had gotten over a million dollars or nearly a million dollars in fines for a frivolous lawsuit against Hillary Clinton. Uh, so is there any way that lawsuits might control this behavior, not change the attitude, not change this desire, but could it control it? Is that possible? Yeah. So that's why when you want to turn against democracy, honestly, works, right? Um, so, uh, so, you know, the use of, so the legal system is a tool. It can be a tool to make us a rule of law country, or it can be a tool to, to you to be used against the rule of law. Um, like Victor Orban does in Hungary, yeah. where he directs lawsuits with regularity against, um, well, he uses the state to direct like ta like frivolous, like suddenly media corp companies face enormous tax fines and they have to sell, sell themselves to his friends. And Ron DeSantis is imitating that, right, with his targeting of the Disney Corporation. He's explicitly yeah. knowingly taking a page from Victor Orban's wow. book. Um, so, uh, so... So you're going to see the courts. I mean, the courts are, of course, the center of all this. The education system is at the center of all this. The courts are at the center of all this. If the courts hold, the courts keep us as a rule of law nation, then lawsuits would be a way to go. And the hope is always that the courts will save us. But the courts can turn. Um, authoritarian. We see that with the Supreme Court, right? So, uh, I mean, that Moore versus Harper was even on the docket is shocking. Uh, so... That's the, the, you know, that would have essentially ended democracy by turning the vote over to uh, state legislatures that are majority right. Republican. Just for our audience, so, that is the case that is a follow on to the Eastman theory of the independent state legislature where they can do anything and can't be reviewed by any court. And so they can abolish all your rights. And that's the end of it. Um, and that is to me the most significant case at the Supreme Court. And you're right, because Hitler also used the courts. He he didn't do everything all at once. He at first passed rules that said, Jews can't shop. Then Jews can't Jews work in a shop. Then Jews can't own a shop. Jews can't wear later hosen. <laughs> okay, right. And Jews have to wear a star. So, right. uh, but he did this through through changing laws one at a time, gradually getting it to not only Jews can't shop, Jews can't leave the ghetto. They have to move to the ghetto and they have to stay there. So it is frightening that courts allowed that to happen. And our courts have done similarly horrible things. I mean, if we look at what happened to the Japanese during uh, the war, uh, the courts allowed that. And so you're right, but we have to rely on something to keep us a democracy to protect all people. I mean, I've, I'm a longtime ACLU member, former board member, who believes that even though I hate what you're saying, you have a right to say it. And that in the marketplace of ideas, truth will out. But we're getting so far away from that that I am worried. I don't think there's any good argument that in the marketplace of ideas, truth will out. And even John Stuart Mill, uh, John Stuart Mill, at the end of at the end of uh, chapter two of On Liberty, 
uh, says, well, this argument for free speech only works if there's a morality of public discussion. If people, mm. if people don't gang up on each other and mob each other and yeah. people in higher situations don't, don't, don't ridicule people in lower situations. But, you know, if you've, if I got off Twitter, but I can tell you there's no morality of public discussion on Twitter, if that's our public sphere. So there's no argument that the truth will out um, on, uh, without hefty premises that are false, that just don't hold of the currency. So where can I follow you now? Because I did try to look you up on Twitter um, and I saw you're not there anymore. So um, how can people follow your views? Is there some other uh, platform you're using? I, I publish I publish articles occasionally in op-eds. So, and my book, How Fascism Works, is uh, my 2018 book. Will will spells out some of some of what I'm saying. But I don't anymore. Um, part I mean, I'm in the media. Uh, uh, you know, I I my had a Guardian piece I published on Friday, but it was about uh, anti-Semitism. It wasn't. But I will publish. But I'm not going to be. I'm not going to participate in that instant uh, fight, fight culture of of, of social media. Uh, I thought it was it was toxic for my family, <laughs> and uh, and took my energy away from what's most important to me, which is my children and my wife. Um, so uh, so um, so I'm going to continue to. People can look out for my op eds in newspapers. I write for the Guardian with regularity and. Project Syndicate, which syndicates my work across the world in different languages, uh, and a number of other uh, outlets. Um, if but, you keep uh, us but, informed uh, of, of what you've written, if you send emails to us, we'll make sure that uh, they get on our website to let our audience true. at least see your viewpoints. And I think you're making me up my contribution to the ADL. Uh, to uh, I mean, because well, you're scaring me. Yeah. Well, the ADL, I'm not sure the I mean... I think in these, what you need to contribute to right now are um, voter registration, the voter yes. registration in the South, in Georgia. We've seen Georgia getting it done. Those uh, Black-led uh, black groups who really know how to deal with voter suppression. Um, you know, the, uh, there's, uh, there's um, you know, uh, group, uh, there's groups like the African-American Policy Forum led by uh, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw. Uh, I think I think it's, uh, you know, black voters have often saved America in the past. They're our national minority. Uh, you know, uh, you know, the historic group like Jews were in Europe, the historic group that is connected to uh, to to our history. That is always the scapegoat. And as a result, they have the kind of know how that delivers the results that we saw that we've seen again and again in Georgia. So when you see those results coming in, when you see people getting it done, like uh, like different di different voter registration, I'll send you some of the names of these groups. Um, Great, we'd love to put that on our website as well on in the right. show notes. Um, that would be fabulous. I think that's very important. Yeah. Very important. Yeah. So we have one last question for you, which is. If you could tell Americans one thing about the state of America right now, what would it be? And what is the best response? I mean, you mentioned registering uh, people in Georgia, but what are some other things that people can do right now um, against this backdrop of far-right extremism? Join a union, but not the police union. <laughs> or the bulwark of... It 
kept the police union. The, uh, the, the unions have been the bulwark of democracy just empirically. I was shocked. That's why Hitler goes, uh, goes against unions here. Um, if you look at the South, uh, racial equality, uh, uh, our rights are, it's the big labor unions that have, that have fought for them again and again and again. That's why the first thing the far right does when they take over a state legislature is pass right to work laws. Uh, it immediately makes, uh, uh, support your teachers union, support public education, uh, the public education is being attacked. Look at the things that are the bulwarks of, a, of our democracy, labor unions, public education, public goods, uh, you know, uh, support them uh, in the face of this attack. Because um, as you said, they, 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 you know, they're trying to get people to distrust public goods. They're trying to get people to distrust the, the structure that binds us together as one nation. I would add libraries to that list of library protection. Thank you. Also, pub, they've moved from public schools. They've now in, uh, really targeted libraries. Yeah. And there are, there's a, there are websites that direct parents to instructions for how to get books banned at your library. So absolutely. no more banned books. Yes. No, exactly. It, it only works. makes kids want to read them more anyway. Uh, <laughs> I have a t-shirt that says I read banned books and I will always read banned books. Right. That's what's called the making lemonade out of lemons strategy. Is saying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll have to fight it. Uh, it's true that if your book is banned, it will increase in its sales. But uh, but we still. Oh, is have that right? Okay, I'll oh, have yeah. to work on that. <laughs> well, look, look at the number one, the most, the only book in uh, in U.S. history that's been banned by name in a law is the sixteen nineteen project, which you know, mm-hmm. being the biggest bestseller in decades or something. Yeah. Wasn't Lady Chatterley's Lover banned by name? By name, I think so. Uh, I, I, interesting. Could be. The, I don't know. I may, maybe, maybe not. Uh, I'll have to research that. <laughs> but well, I, this has been so fascinating. I, I, I really, I've learned a great deal, um, and I appreciate this. And I hope we can continue this dialogue as we see how America develops, what happens um, as we uh, start the campaign for 2024, and. Uh, I, for one, will continue to try to fight to get the facts out there. I still believe truth matters, that facts matter, and that we have to keep saying what is true and what isn't true. Um, I try not to retweet anything that has a lie in it, even with, uh, although occasionally with commentary of blatant lie, um, just to make sure that there are answers with countering it with the facts. I still think facts matter. They do, but uh, but don't facts do. But we have to get to a situation where we trust each other enough to have a fact based discourse. Yeah. So we've got to have first because. Okay, I'm going to reread Areopagitica and see if I can convince you that it does come down to in the free marketplace, truth will out. Because uh, I don't know what the other answer is if we don't keep on trying to get the facts out there. No, we've got to get the facts out there, but there's no facts don't matter on a battlefield. <laughs> that yeah. It's not an argument. It's just a war. Yeah. And that's yeah. unfortunately we've got ourselves in. We first got to trust each other, not to be each other's enemies so much. And then we can have a fact-based discourse. 
Yeah. Well, Jason, thank you so much for joining us. It's been such a pleasure and, and truly we've learned so much and hopefully we can continue this dialogue because it's so important. That was a really fascinating conversation. I think for a lot of people, you know, democracy is such an abstract concept. And so to hear Jason talk about the threat of fascism and, and what it means right now to have a society that completely distrusts each other as a result of politicians who feed them lies, who know better, but still yet feed them lies is really alarming. And so, um, like you said, I, I think one of the best ways to respond is, you know, joining things that actually counter that. So unions are great. Supporting your libraries. Those are the things that will actually resist that. So I thought it was a really cool conversation, a really alarming conversation. You want to continue our conversation from before the beginning of the show about the Pence documents, or should we wait until we know more facts about Pence documents? Maybe, I, I, I don't know where you were at the beginning of the show, um, but maybe just quickly talking about the, dis, the differences between uh, Pence and Biden, which seems more similar compared to uh, Trump. And then I know we're at 53 minutes now, so, so we can wrap with, with that perhaps. Okay, so I think the big difference is that what matters is what happens once the documents are discovered. There is a problem with the documents being in a non-secure location. Bad, bad, bad. And that is a systemic problem that must be dealt with. Somehow the government needs to be more like a library and check things out and check them back in. In the case of Biden and Pence, it appears that the National Archives did not even know that they were missing documents. And so there was no way to even request them back. In the case of Trump, they knew they were missing documents. They asked for them back and he refused. He said, no, I'm keeping them, they're mine. I want them. And then he lied about them. He said, okay, I'm giving these back. You now have everything. He had a lawyer sign a fake affidavit, a totally false affidavit saying, complete search was made and there is no more. And that was a lie that led to not just the subpoena that was being lied about, but to a search warrant, a search which revealed many more cartons of documents. I'm not talking about a half dozen, a dozen, two dozen. I'm talking about a whole, you know, bad, bad stuff. The, the big difference is that we don't prosecute people for just accidentally removing a document. It's bad, it shouldn't happen, and we need a system that stops it. But what we do prosecute for, what is criminal, is when there's an intent, which there doesn't seem to be for Pence or Biden, but does seem to be for Trump, and when they do something else. And in the case of Trump, obstruction is clear. The lies and the resistance, um, the hiding of them, those are clear additional elements that make it prosecutable. So I think that's what the big deal is. Absolutely. Well, we will definitely be keeping an eye on that in the weeks to come. And uh, stay tuned. Next week, we'll be back with another episode of um, iGen Politics. Be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube and wherever you follow your podcast. We will be back next week. And we hope you enjoyed this video. And we'll be uh, sure to post Jason's articles in our show notes because I think it's essential reading. Um, and uh, his book on fascism and pro propaganda is unfortunately one that we need more than ever before. So thanks everyone for watching and we will see you next week with another episode of iGen Politics.